Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Scherba, and today I have the extreme pleasure of sitting down with John Weston, Senior Vice President, Global Microsoft Practice at Publicis Sapien. John, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on today. I've been looking forward to this one. Why don't we just jump right into it? Can you take us through your career journey leading up until this point? Yeah, be glad glad to. So um, after high school, went to college at Southern Methodist University here in Dallas, Texas. Uh, so I've always been a Dallas guy, um, which is kind of unusual in the field that I've been in. Um, but think thought about right out of college, interviewed with the big players, you know, IBMs and the TIs of the world. And I said, you know, that's not for me. So I started my own software company the, the day after I graduated from college and oh, no. did that for 10 years with my brother. Learned an immense amount of things. Uh, we were partners with IBM, partners with Microsoft, hired wow. hundreds of people over the years. Um, and, and then we sold it. Um, and that was a really interesting experience to sell it to one of our customers. Um, after that, I then became a contractor to Microsoft. So I really kind of, we were a big partner Microsoft and that was kind of the mothership to me, always a really cool company. And I was a contractor to them uh, doing training and uh, training their new people on technology in the first Oh, gosh, probably six or seven years there. And then they asked me to join as a full-time employee. So all up at Microsoft, I was there about 25 years. Uh, so did my own thing for 10 years and then Microsoft for 25 years. Um, and at Microsoft, that we could talk all day just about the stuff I did at Microsoft. Yeah. And then um, two years ago, I decided to take an early retirement from them and come over here to Publicis Sapient and just kind of start over again. Um, I'm really um, building out what we call the Microsoft practice. My view on that is I'm an entrepreneur inside of a $10 billion company, uh, building a new business um, that already was here. Um, it was just in the beginning stages, but we really want to make it into a you know, hundreds of millions of dollar business inside of our consulting organization around Microsoft technologies and partnering with Microsoft in that space. And so it, it, it brings together my experiences of owning my own company, built, you know, doing application development and as techn technologist, my sales capabilities. And then, of course, all the kind of things that I learned over the 25 years at Microsoft. And so it's been a, a fun journey to get to this point. Unreal. And I, I want to jump straight into the entrepreneurial aspect of this, because obviously um, you've come full circle and you're kind of channeling that that mindset again. Now, Pupus is sapient. But, you know, to make that decision to jump into starting your own business and then growing into something big enough to you know sell and, and hire hundreds of people straight out of school. What was what went into that decision making framework? Like I, I know that you kind of mentioned briefly that, uh, you know, you looked at the big players. It wasn't necessarily for you in that moment. And then you made this leap, but how did it, like, what was the process behind that? Yeah. So it, 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 I had some experience already. Right. So I, I, my dad had always had consulting businesses on the side of either a professor or other jobs that he did. And so he had, he'd run into his own businesses several times. So I got to see that and witness that as a child. Right. Um, in, in high school, even I was always trying to figure out, you know, how to make money, you know, uh, newspaper routes or, are different, you know, things that I could do to make money. One of my favorite stories to tell in college was um, at SMU, the freshman, you have a choice. You either have to live at home or live in the freshman dorms. And the freshman right. dorms are the oldest dorms and they're, there's no carpet and they're very small. And, and you know, it's a, there's some money that comes to that school. And so it, 
it, it was interesting. We would go to the carpet remnant store and buy carpet and cut it out to fit the floor. Well, in July or in, in May, when you moved out, you had to take that out. So I would go around and for $5, I would pull the carpet out and then I'd roll it up and store it in my parents' garage. Come August, I would vacuum it and resell the same carpet. I sold the same piece of carpet four years in a row in college. And because all the dorm rooms were exactly the same sp- space, so a, a piece of carpet would work in any dorm room. Right. And and so I've you know, and we would jack the beds up with center blocks. So I would go buy center blocks, and for ten bucks, I would bring you four center blocks and jack up your bed for you. And for twenty five dollars, I'd I'd put in a piece of carpet for you. But I literally sold the same piece of carpet four different years in college. So I was already an entrepreneur trying to figure out ways and I paid for my books. You know, I paid for part of my college education by by doing those kind of things. And I was a contract programmer on the side while going to college full time. Um, You know, so I was always looking at ways to make money. So having my own business, being an entrepreneur was already inbred in me long before I graduated to college. And it was a hard decision, uh, you know, obviously being out of college, get, just getting married and having, you know, just kind of getting started out with no safety net. Right. I mean, we right. had to go figure out how to create a business, create a business plan, get, you know, and and grow it out of cash flow. Um, and that, you know, to me, I, I still today have that entrepreneurial st- spirit. Right. As I mentioned in my intro, you know, I view that I'm building something inside of the company. I'm here. You can always be an entrepreneur, even if you're in some of the biggest companies in, in the world. I've built teams. I've built products. I've built solutions. And 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 that's because of the, the way I think like an entrepreneur, regardless of the size company that I work in. Yeah, no, I think that resonates hugely for me because I think that there's just like this kind of bug that that you can be born with that just like you you always look at the angle of how can I capitalize on this opportunity to 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 make money, for example, and like you know that resonates with me because I, as many people are these days, I play video games, but we're in a digital age where those can be simply downloaded right? Stored on a storage or played through the cloud or whatever cases, I still buy physical games. And some of my friends ask me, well, why? So, well, because I can't sell a digital game after I'm done with it, right? So it's like, I'm not mitigating the cost of playing this game versus, you know, you can either pay $80 and then have a sunken cost, or I can pay $80 and sell it for 50 and pay it forward towards whatever else, right? And so, you know, I think that that really resonates with me. And, but, you know, when you embark on that straight out of school, you know, it's one thing to have experience just being focused on turning things into opportunity around making money. But then there's another thing around standing an organization up, you know, managing the product aspect of it, like what you're trying to build, create service to your clients with or whatever the case is. But then also there's as it grows without, you know, a ton of experience, you're now having to develop growth, like a culture inside of an organization. You're having to create opportunities for hopefully high performance, high potential people to want to stay with you and grow with you. So how did you, you know, what were the growing pains and kind of the ways that you learned how to do that right? Because that's different skill set than standing up a money-making business and a product. Yeah, growing pains were interesting. Um, A lot of them revolved around money (laughs) because we didn't have a line of, you know, we didn't have a bank loan. We didn't have huge financial investors. We did it purely out of cash flow, right? So we were, we were limited really in our growth by two factors. One, how many people my brother and I could manage before we put in a second layer of management. And two was cash flow to how fast we could grow it. Now we were pretty conservative, right? Um, My brother's more conservative than I am, which is good. (laughs) Um, You know, it saved us several different times, but it, you know, cash is king and, and being able to only grow, um, 
as fast as you can cash flow it. And one of the interesting things, I had a, a gentleman uh, by the name of Robert Glaze. Um, he, he's no longer with us, but he, he, he was a customer of ours and he um, gave us some great advice. He said, companies don't fail because it has a bad idea. Companies fail because they run out of cash. <laughs> and, yeah. and you may have the best idea in the world, but if you don't manage it properly um, from, you can actually outgrow yourself, right? I mean, you could be too successful and not be able to deliver on what you've sold. And so we always kept that at heart. Um, and, and sometimes that limited how big we could get. Um, you know, at one point we had a competitor of ours um, get into some trouble and um, actually wanted to sell to us. And so we were like, okay, but they were, there were some issues there. And so we actually, the, the guy actually went out of business, closed his business. So we hired some of his employees and we actually hired him to bring some of his customers over with us. That didn't always go so smoothly. Right. And, and then when we were going to sell the company, um, we had several people try to buy it and it, it, it it's not just about the money. It's about the feeling right. Right. I mean, it, right. we wanted to take care of our employees. We wanted to do the right thing. It had to be the right fit. We didn't, we didn't want them to change the culture. Right. And, and it, it, that's why we, you know, we had several different offers from hardware companies or big companies to buy us that wanted to get into the space that we were in and the company, you know, we were a consulting company. We were doing project application development work in the late eighties and early nineties. Right. And you think about that world is very differently than it is today. We had different programming languages and different tools and we sold it to one of our customers and that customer was in the business of staff augmentation, if you will. And right. they viewed exactly what we did as staff augmentation. And, and it wasn't a perfect match, um, but it still was, you know, we did some pretty cool things. We negotiated in the deal, you know, again, as I mentioned, cash flow, we didn't have the latest and greatest computers. So we couldn't afford to buy everybody the nicest machines and offices and stuff. So we really wanted to take care of the employees. So we negotiated in the deal that every employee got a new computer. Uh, as part of the deal. And so what we did is that we bought Dell laptops and, and desktops. And so we actually had those shipped to my house. <laughs> and so we, we inked the deal and we had, we bought the computers, had them shipped to my house and we were about 50, 60 employees at that time. And so we, um, on a Sunday night, brought them all from my house to the conference room, covered them up with a big blue tarp called a special employee meeting and, and we basically in person announced we've sold the company. We're not going anywhere. Both of, you know, the ownership is going to stay here and here's our new role in the new company. And they were like, what's behind the tarp? And so we pulled down the tarp and says, and by this afternoon, every one of you get a new computer. I mean, it's such an awesome gesture. And just like it, it's a demonstration of, of keeping your people in, in a priority lens, right. To know yeah. that there's these quality of life things that might seem insignificant that, could drive so much happiness in the workplace that just make people want to work harder, make them thankful, right? Make them look through things in it with a more positive lens. So, I mean, it's just awesome to hear that. And I think what you, what you taught the, what you mentioned, um, that quote around this idea of, uh, companies don't fail because they have bad ideas, but because they, they run out of cash. I think that's a really powerful sentiment, right? This oh, idea yeah. that a company can be successful, but outpace itself and still fail. Right. And, I mean, and, and that Robert told me that 35 years ago and it still, it just resonates with me today. You know, and, I mean, and, man, and, but having that sort of, um, 
uh, guidance, let's say, in a critical moment, right? Like when you were an entrepreneur early in your career, I think that can it can very significantly shape your perspective and your approach, right? That could define Absolutely. success or, or failure. And so I guess, you know, I want to talk a little bit about that from like a mentorship standpoint, right? Okay. Did you find that um, across that an entrepreneurial period and then we'll, we'll obviously go into more detail on your stretch at Microsoft but like did you have mentors that played key roles that that helped shape that Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So as I mentioned, we had Robert during the, when we had Western brothers, um, at, at Microsoft, I had what I call my board of directors, um, right. you know, over the 18 years as an employee there, I probably had 20 or 25 managers and there was three or four of them that I really today even would work for in a heartbeat trusted with all things. And when I made it, you know, cause you make a lot of career decisions in, to stay at a company for 25 years. Um, Whenever I was about to make a big career move or a career decision, I brought that board together. Maybe not in person, maybe not all in the same room, but I would go to them and ask for advice. And I would say, you know, look, here's my current situation. Here's what I'm thinking about doing. What am I not thinking about? And what is your perspective? And just sit and listen. Right. And and it's just incredible coaching, right? I mean, um, you know, sometimes it, it, you, when you navigate a big company like Microsoft, it's so critical to be at the right place at the right time, pick this job to get the next job after it. Um, but I, I really got so much out of that mentoring and I wanted to get back. And so I was probably doing a little bit of mentoring before Microsoft, but at Microsoft, there's a formal mentorship program where you can sign up and say, here's the topics I'm interested in. Here's the experiences I've had and glad to mentor. And so I got started with that formal program. Now that formal program went away after a couple of years, but you know, I would say probably the last 10 years at Microsoft on any given occasion, I probably had 10 people that I was mentoring right. and the way that, and here's my rules of engagement for mentoring. And I still do this today. Um, it, once a month, you'll get 30 minutes or an hour, depending upon the situation. And so once a month, you get 30 minutes of my time and you own the agenda as the, as, as the mentee. And we talk, can talk about whatever. You can come to me with questions. You can come to me with situations. Um, you can ask my advice or we can just talk about life, right? And, and people want to tap into my experiences that I've had and learn from that. What people don't realize as a mentor, I learned so much from them. Right. Um, and that's why I continue to do it because yes, I do it because I'm giving back and, and, and helping others as, as I have been helped in the past. But, it, but it, it, to me, I learn a different perspective. We, we all see our world from the day we live in it every day. But when you see outside of that, you know, some of my favorite mentors at Microsoft um, had one guy was in what they call the mock program, mock MBA, which is that is the early in career straight out of college. As you know, right. So he, he went back and got his MBA and then straight out of MBA came to Microsoft. And so I this was this guy's mentor and um, he didn't understand hierarchy, right? I mean, I was seven layers from the CEO. There were certain things you didn't, you had skip levels with your manager, but you would never go to your boss's boss without telling your boss or, you know, those right. kind of, that just was meaningless to him. And, and that was so refreshing. It was so right. scary, right? But, but, you know, if he needed a lawyer on the deal he was working on, he called the head lawyer at Microsoft. He didn't understand that there were maybe in hundreds or thousands of lawyers. Right. There's a certain person he was supposed to call. He called the head one and said, Hey, I need your help. You know, and it just was refreshing perspective. Um, you know, back in those days, we 
we did everything by written and by email, right? Very email. Right. He brought in, he says, no, John, we're going to do everything by video. I'm going to interview you kind of like we're doing this podcast today. He came in and inter video interviewed me and shared the video with all of the mock hires, right? Wow. It, it, was, it was just, you know, he was doing more managing up than I, and it was such a different perspective, right? A young perspective. I was always set in my ways of doing things and I'd been there for so many years and knew how to navigate the world. He didn't care about navigating the world because it, his world was a different world than mine. And, and I really learned to relate to them. I still connect with him uh, you know, often we don't do it monthly anymore because he's now on the other side of the world. But, you know, it, it, it just is to me, it's refreshing to learn from people by mentoring them. Uh, and most people don't understand that the mentor gets just as much out of it as the mentee. Yeah, I think what's key there is what you said is that most people don't understand that. And that I think that um, mentorship, right, if, if for you, you mentioned having up to 10 people that you're mentoring, and that's yep. probably over and above your team that you're managing. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yep. And so when you think about that, it, it's very easy for somebody who's looking at mentorship as a one-way road where they're just providing disproportional value that that becomes uh, you know, a, a time suck or it becomes something that they're not enjoying or they feel like they're, they're forced to do. That's not the case at all. If, I think if you were to approach it from the outset with the mindset that you have that each and every one of these conversations is as much a learning opportunity for me as yeah. it is for the mentee, that totally changes the experience for both parties. And then also exponentially, I think, increases the value that everyone extracts out of the interaction. Yeah. It, it, some people dread doing a mentor, right? Because, oh my gosh, it's time I got to give away. To me, I look forward to it because I'm going to yeah. learn something new. I'm going to see a different perspective and I'm going to add to my set of stories, right? I mean, I, I give you another quick mentor. You know, I do stuff outside of pure work. I got my wife's a teacher, friend, teacher friend of hers. Her husband got laid off. He'd been in a bank auditor for 20 years. He didn't know anybody outside the bank. He didn't know what LinkedIn was, right? He, he didn't even know where <laughs> to start helping find a job. So I got him on LinkedIn. Um, we got him, a, you know, and he had kids in college. So he had to find a new job, you know, pretty quickly. And so yeah. helped him land a job and it didn't last because he it was in sales and he'd never done sales before. But but he came out of that experience with sales experience. He learned that he doesn't like to sell, right? I mean, yeah. and that's kind of good, but I really kind of worked with him in a career of, okay, that career you had is over, right? The bank right. that you go, the, the, the world you knew is gone. Let's reinvent yourself. What do you, what do you like to do? What do you want to go do? You know, and just, you know, helping him through that process was so rewarding to me. I mean, we're still really good friends today, and I don't, you know, I don't want a finder's fee, or I don't want to, you know, any money from him. I, I enjoyed the process and his success in finding that next job and that next career, and it, and it really was rewarding to me to help see someone transition from that because he was in a tough spot, right? Yeah, and, and I, had, I could help. I was connected to people. I know a lot of people, and and wasn't directly related to someone that I knew that helped him get the next job, but it helped him think and helped him start learning how to use tools like LinkedIn uh, to land that next job. And that to me was so rewarding. Yeah, for sure. And I think this idea of, of kind of offering that sort of disproportionate value um, everywhere that you can, uh, it translates to to opportunities and benefits for you down the line as well. I think you mentioned, for example, that your board of directors that you carried with you across your career at Microsoft, that you would work with any of them in a heartbeat. 
right? Absolutely. And so having a network of people like that that you would do that for, they benefit from that because they know that if they ever had an incredible opportunity, they can look around oh, and say, continue John Weston is, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that, that, that's a person I can call and we're going to partner to do something great, right? Or, or yep. I can ask for, for support or whatever. And I think that there's like a natural synergy that grows when you kind of approach it that way. I want to talk a little bit more about that board of directors. I think it's an important thing. You were at Microsoft, you said for 18 years, um, that's a long time to be at a place. I'm sure that, you know, that it's one thing for that board of directors that have helped you navigate the internal opportunities, but you're, you're a driven, ambitious person just based on like your entrepreneurial spirit and stuff, obviously. Uh, so there's probably opportunities where you were potentially looking externally too. Were you able to use that board of directors to candidly assess those opportunities as well? Because I think that that's a unique thing if you were. I don't know yeah. that a lot of people have that type of guidance. Yeah, absolutely. And and those opportunities came, right? And, you know, from competitors of Microsoft and customers and others yeah. that, that were interested in me. Um, what I always came back to is I love the company. I love the product that Microsoft builds. And they had what I called golden handcuffs on me, you know, right. I looked at an outside opportunity, the golden handcuffs were stock grants, right? Which vest over time. And it, if you leave, you lose that money. Right. And, and it, and it was such a missed opportunity. I mean, obviously if you look back at the last 25 years of the Microsoft stock of what it's done, even if you go back when I was in the contract days, I had people that, you know, their net worth was doubling every year because of the Microsoft stock they owned in the eighties and nineties. Now, obviously it was flat for you know a decade there in the middle, but now it's back on the rise again. Right. And, and so, you know, why did I get asked many times, why did you finally leave Microsoft after that long time? Why didn't you stay to, you know, till you stopped working? And and they they have a thing there at Microsoft called early retirement when you reach age 55 and you've been there 15 years continuous in the U.S. And that's key. You can't leave. You got to stay 15 years straight. You're allowed to leave. And those golden handcuffs are gone. I, you continue to vest in your stock. And so. Oh, wow. That's that was not the only reason I, I didn't leave the company. I left a bad manager. Right. That's mm. a whole other story. <laughs> but 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 it's it's a you know, the golden handcuffs were gone. And so it changed the perspective of the decision to come here to publicist. You know, wow. it, it was, you know, any opportunity I'd looked at before that time frame, the value of that stock made it worthwhile to stay at the company, regardless of the situation. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, that makes obviously a lot of sense. And that's a great insight, right? As people weigh opportunity cost of leaving in their own careers when they listen to this, uh, whatever organization they're at currently. Um, but I mean, there had to be a, another side to that coin as you were kind of flipping it back and forth is, you know, what were the opportunities for you to navigate or change or reinvent your career within Microsoft? And I think Absolutely. when we talked last, there was a ton of that opportunity for you. And okay. you had a pretty crazy story arc there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it when I started at Microsoft, the culture was every two years you needed to take a new job or something was wrong with you. Right. Um, it, you know, you, there was, okay, you're supposed to do sales. Okay. You're supposed to do support. You're supposed to do services, you know, get a well-rounded career and always moving around. And that basically was, it takes you six months to figure out a role. It, it, it takes you six months after that to kind of get really good at it. And then the next second year is kind of your proficient at it and have a very high success. You take that success and then find your next job. And in some cases that worked well in other cases like account continuity, right? I mean, there, somebody's account manager was changing every year or two years. Right. So that was right. really negative. Um, what happens though is if you stayed in the same job for five years or more that you were branded, Oh, you're that presenter guy, or you're that, exchange guy, you're that sequel, you know, you're that, that person, you have a persona that's 
hard to overcome. And then the organization changes, right? I mean, the Microsoft of today is radically different than the Microsoft that I joined. And and you have to adapt. You have to change. You know, they're a cloud company today. They weren't a cloud company 15 years ago, right? right. You have to think about how you change your skill set and look at what's going to I mean. I was on a team um, called the evangelism team, right? That we went around and gave 200 speeches a year because I love to be on stage and do presentations. And I saw Azure come out and I was like, that's it. And when it first came out, it didn't do much at all. It was a very minimal product. But I saw the, I bought into the vision and the future of cloud computing 13 years ago, right? And you think about, I flipped my career 100% Azure since then. And that's obviously paid off very well for me. Um, but I, you know, may have not have said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll just stay in this speaking role and do that. I, but I really said, I see the future there and switched to everything Azure. Along that way, um, I had a really interesting, so I did change pretty frequently, but it, and it, I did, I made a couple of really interesting non-traditional changes. Mm-hmm. Join Microsoft as a manager and the, and the, and the, the perception was your career is to become a group manager, which is called an M2 or an M3, which is manager of managers, you know, and all the way up to the vice president, right? So you, you're wanting to go up the, the corporate chain as the tradition. Right. And once you're a manager, you would never go back to be an individual contributor or, or an individual person and not managing people. And I, I was there probably five years and I'd done quite well. I had own, you know, it's these, it's these kingdom buildings, right? I mean, it's that you're measured just by the size of your organization and, and your span of control. And the further I got up into management, and so I was managing just managers, not individual contributors, I got further away from technology and further away from the customer. And I right. was end up doing, I was in these meetings and, and building spreadsheets and doing internal meetings. It just drove me crazy. I was like, I got to get out of this. And, and went through some pretty rough reorganizations and said, you know what? I'll just go back and be an individual contributor. And it was, people were like, you're ending your career. That's, you're done. You've, you've given up on the dream of the climbing the corporate ladder. Yeah. And I said, you know, I don't care. It's what's best for me. And it's what I enjoy doing. And I was very successful as an individual contributor, um, helped do the, the Walmart um, Azure deal, right? It was the largest cloud deal in the world six years ago. And obviously there have been way bigger ones since then, but yeah. that kind of put me on the map as I was a successful seller. And then I had one of those career kind of assessment things. They did this. It was a career opportunity to kind of, where do you want to go next with your career? And after you're successful, there's obviously it opens a lot of doors. And they said, they said, what skills do you have that we're not taking success of, or we're not taking advantage of here? And I said, I love to manage people and I love to grow teams. Obviously, as an individual seller, I've been very successful, but I've got a lot of skill set building highly successful sales teams that you're not taking advantage of. And so they asked me to go back into sales management. Um, and I built a team from about four people in the first year. Four years later, that team was 300 people, all selling cloud, right? Wow. Which didn't exist. And then four years later, there's four, 300 people doing about a billion in revenue. And, and so if you look big picture at those 18 years, manager up through management ranks, not quite VP, but you know, I was manager of managers to an individual contributor. You just never do that. Successful individual contributor, and then back into management and then grew a team back to where I was, you know, back in the orgs of, you know, more than a hundred people. Um, 
very unusual to do that, right? I mean, if you look at the percentage of people at Microsoft that have been manager, individual contributor back to a group manager, probably less than 1% of the people. Sure, yeah. And and to me, one, that helped me stay there as long as I did. And two, it created opportunities for me that you sometimes, you can't just chase the corporate ladder. You got to do what you're passionate about, what you love to do. And sometimes that's a, not, it's not a step backwards. It's just a step in a radically different direction that people, oh my God, you know, I can't tell you the number of people that me, you've ended your career by making this move. And I'm like, maybe, maybe I have, I don't know, but let's see how it turns out. And obviously it turned out pretty well. Yeah. I think what's really powerful about that is, is this idea of, of taking a step back to individual contribution from a point of like some sort of senior leadership that's often something that is um, a consequence, right? Of maybe mm-hmm. a lack of foresight, of lack of performance, of, of whatever the case is. And that's, I think maybe that's where that negative um, connotation comes from is that, you know, I don't think many people choose to take a step back from that corporate ladder and focus on on uh, getting cl- closer to the work again, right? Or, or right. making sure that they reinsert that passion and love to, to their job, right? Um, I think that's a really important thing to call out that like, what you did is you assessed critically, like what it is that would make you happy in your role. Identified, you yep. weren't going to get that in the direction that you're going. What do I like to do? Yep. Exactly, and then and then you you know kind of bucked the trend and said, it, you know, I'm making this decision, right? I'm not ending a career. I'm finding happiness in a new direction in within my yep. career, right? And then you know, it paid div- in dividends because obviously finding that passion. It was accelerative and you were very good. And that drove impact that you were able to deliver. Impact was immense. And then that impact translates to downstream success again, right? And growth opportunity and and ascension. So like, I think, you know, there's a lesson there that like making sure that you're always taking into account, am I really happy with what I'm doing? And is there other ways for me to be happier with what I'm doing? Because that happiness translates to working hard, doing good work, delivering impact which ultimately, generally speaking, translates to that success and growth, right? So like, there's definitely an equation there that, that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, I, I, you talked a little bit about one of the particular roles there that you had around giving speeches as an evangelist, right? <laughs> I think that's a particularly interesting role. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. But also because the last time we spoke, you used the term I hadn't really heard before, extemporaneous speaking. And, <laughs> and, and I, you know, particularly like you talked about like loving public speaking, that resonates with me because I find public speaking so rewarding and uh, to be so rewarding and, and, and thrilling, right? I think I'm okay at it, <laughs> but obviously everyone has room to grow. But I'd love to hear about that particular term and then also that role of kind of being an evangelist and, and what that entailed and, and how that type of role even exists. Yep. That's no, great, great question. So this goes way back. Um, it's my older, my sister um, was a debater, right? Then became a lawyer, right? That's kind of the natural progression that debate in high school equals law degree three years later or whatever. But I saw her in that debate team, right? And so I went to sign up for it in middle school. The middle school I went to, even before high school, had a debate team. And there were three different roles you could have. You could be on the debate team. You could be on the prose team, which was basically writing poetry and giving speeches. There was this new kind of thing, and it was called extemporaneous speaking. I was the first time eighth grader. I, I could say I could say extemporaneous speaking. It's like what the heck did this? But I, it, it was, I'm was, I'm an adrenaline junkie, right? You know, so right. it, 
it basically the way extemporaneous speaking works is you go into a room, they give you a controversial topic and you have 10 minutes to go away and write a speech. You're allowed to give one three by five card that you can take in there with you and give a speech. And then after those 10 minutes of prep time, you have to give anywhere from a five to seven minute speech. And it, and, and so you have to, it's, it's risky, right? I mean, cause you yeah. got what side of this, you know, one of them was, I don't know, should we ban smoking or, you know, those kind of, you know, all controversial topics. And, and you have to be able to take risk. You have to take a stand. You have to be able to be convincing and sell people and convince them on your idea. But it really is impromptu public speaking. It, I call it BS on your feet. Right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> it, it is how fast can you research a topic, come up with a perspective, and, and BS on it and, not, and make the BS believable, right? Yeah. And, and tell a story. And so I did it through middle school and continued it into high school. I didn't do it all years in high school, but but um, I really enjoyed the adrenaline portion of it and, and got pretty good at it because it, it's, it you know, you think about someone in high school or in middle school or high school and standing up and speaking would just freak most people out, right? Yeah. And, and I still today, if I get on stage in front of 500 people or whatever, I get butterflies. And it's sure. all about taking that nervous energy and focusing it on telling a quality story and engaging the audience, right? And and I learned that very, very early on. So roll that, th- you know, pass into my career. When I got out of the management job and the first job I had as an individual contributor before I got back into sales was this thing called... A IT pro evangelist, right? And oh my gosh, when you you know, here in the South, you, you hear the word evangelist, you, you immediately have religious connotations. Like, yeah. what in the world is a religion job doing in a corporate world? Basically, an IT pro evangelist is someone that that cares about that industry, cares about the people in it, and and delivers and communicates the Microsoft message in a number of ways, giving speeches in person. So anything from large conferences to user groups. Actually, part of my goals one year was to help create user groups and go out there and nurture the community and build more user groups. So it was evangelizing the products, not necessarily selling it, creating a brand. So helping with the marketing activity, you know, it back in, you, know, you think about 20 years ago, the big tchotchke at events was t-shirts now right. box or whatever the, you know, the current thing is now, but it, you know, one year we gave away two and a half million t-shirts. Oh my goodness. You know, and, and that was, you know, measuring their impact. And then of course it was a combination of, of in-person live events, um, with, you know, with, um, you know, nowadays, obviously, you know, webcasts and, 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 and podcasts like this, that you know, kind of a combined world in that whole space. And so evangelism is, is really a unique role. And there's still companies that have those roles. You're not in a sales role. You're not in a marketing role, but you're the face, if you will, of that brand. And, and you, you know, give a lot of presentations and a lot of speech. And so um, to me, that's a really, really pretty cool uh, role that, that you have. And you can tie that all the way back to the extemporaneous speaking that I did in middle school. Uh, not afraid to get up on stage to talk to people. I absolutely love that because, you know, me personally, five, six years ago now, I jumped into the world of Toastmasters, which I'm sure is a yep. familiar organization absolutely. to a lot of people. Yep. And, and it, you know, before, you know, I was very re- relatively early in my career and I, I just saw it as an opportunity. Let's let's sharpen this skill set. Let's make it elite. Right. Let's let's become a really, really strong and talented public speaker. But very quickly, what I realized, like I, that I was getting the most value out of 
was the impromptu speaking, the table topics, this idea of picking up a topic, reading it and building a structured speech about it, whether you know a damn thing about it or not. Right. <laughs> yep. And that's exactly what you described with this term of extemporaneous speaking. And to me, I think what that develops is the ability to um, for for the ability for that sort of on your toes speaking and being a navigated conversation or presentation to become second nature and instinctual. So that way, when you're actually in that situation and you do know something about the topic, you're yeah. able to focus on that more than having to do the navigation. If the navigation is instinctual, now suddenly you're that much more powerful. You're two steps ahead because you can focus on the, the information, the solution or whatever the, the problem is. Right. And I think that's a really powerful thing to, for people to understand that when you can practice the skill set of being good on your feet with the actual speaking, Right and crafting the story with yeah. the words, then that becomes, you know, second nature. And you don't have to worry about that part anymore. Now just worry about the problem you're trying to solve or the thing you're trying to influence. Yes. A, a couple of, it reminds me of a couple of great stories. One is when somebody thinks they want to be an evangelist, the first thing I re recommend is go, go join Toastmasters for six months. Right. And right. then come back and tell me whether or not you want to be an evangelist or not. Right. And, and, and also the interview process. One time we interviewed a guy on paper, resume, great. In the interview, great, perfect candidate. We hired him. He went to give his first speech. He stands up in front of 100 people in the room, and he locked up. Oh, boy. It just literally froze and ran out of the room and said, I can't do this job. Jeez. And we didn't know that through the interview process. And so what we then changed was our interview process to where we said, okay, um, come to the interview. You're going to give a seven to 10-minute speech, chief, very similar to – Toastmasters, right? And and we're going to try to trip you up, right? Really, the inner we would bring four or five people in a room and try to stump them, try to you know make their projector break or ask them some bizarre question to try to see if they get flustered um, in a in a high pressure situation like that. And you'd be amazed at what people and they could talk about whatever topic they wanted. It didn't have to be technical or not. But you'd be amazed at how you really get to see people perform when they have to give a presentation if they're if they're good at that or not or if they're comfortable speaking as you say just standing up and 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 making a presentation because um that's not for everybody not everybody no. understands how to channel that nervous energy um and 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 thrive in that environment um and that's okay not everybody has to do that um you know uh, it's 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 a little bit of the type a extroverts versus the you know introverts you know an introvert is going to hate having to do that um, some introverts are good at it but but it just you know typically um you know an extrovert uh type a personality is going to going to thrive more in that environment yeah for sure for sure and i i, I do think again like that it just as a skill set even if you are an extrovert working on it to sharpen it if you are an introvert working on it to develop it is such an important thing and I think such a big differentiator and, and, and contributor to growth uh, throughout a career and just even personally. I'll tell you one of my secrets on a, on a big one right quick before we Please, change. Yeah. It, uh, my nervousness is, is directly proportional to the number of the people in the audience. Mm. No seven launch, I had 5,000 people in the audience in Dallas and my parents were, were there. The, ner the, the, the butterflies in my stomach don't eat right before you present. Right, right, right. <laughs> but you have to, channel that. So I'm, let's say in the green room, about to go on stage in 10 minutes. I'm actually humming the theme to Rocky to myself that I can do this. <laughs> Amazing. 
right? And and I I have to remind myself, okay, now you're on stage, stop singing Rocky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 just deliver it. You've got this, right? And 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 the, the, I also coach entrepreneurs, right? So when you're done, that you've been going on adrenaline for that entire time, you haven't eaten anything. The first thing you should do after giving a speech is go eat something and get in and go get calm for a little bit. Don't try to drive. Don't try to go do some productive work. Just, just, you got about two hours that is going to physically take your body to recover after giving a speech. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's taxing. I, I, you know, I a hundred percent agree. And, uh, there's that kind of adrenaline exhalation, right. Uh, afterwards, um, you know, it's like, coming off of like a championship game right or something like that and uh you're just exhausted uh, physically yeah, and you, and also because you know whether it went well or not like oh, you yeah. know it's, oh, you, yeah. there's no second guessing it's like, oh, i and think that kind of well no you know right you know coming out of it. people i actually talked and had a conversation with about 10 people in that room and i talked to the same 10 people the other 4980 just enjoyed listening to the conversation exactly Exactly. No, I love that. But I mean, this skill set, um, the entrepreneurial aspect, the, na- the, the navigating your career the way you did and kind of the confidence to be able to take a step back, to take two steps forward. All of that to me is conducive to a, a really like strong set of skills that that uh, can be employed by a leader. And I know in talking with you previously that leadership is something that you're really passionate about. Uh, talk a little bit about your view on leadership and why it's so important to you. Yeah. Um, first off, leadership does not equal manager. Right. <laughs> Right. Or coach. Those are all three very distinct roles and capabilities. Um, I learned very early on that uh, regardless of what I'm going to be in, whether it's an organization, a homeowners association, athletic activity, whatever it is, I'm going to be a leader in that organization. It just is hard for me. First off, it's hard for me to watch poor leadership. Right. And leadership is not authority, right? I mean, I don't have to be a manager or a VP to be a leader. I can be a leader as any role in a team, right? Any individual contributors can be leaders all day long. And uh, here's my take on is a little bit different. I firmly believe that the leadership gene is genetic. Um, I have four kids. I see leadership in all four of them. And, and my coaching to my kids is embrace that leadership. Right. Use it to your advantage. Um, we can't stand seeing poor leadership. And so you've got to contribute by being leader. Does that mean you have to run the place? No, but you can lead people and see the vision. You know, so leadership's all about there's a goal, there's a target, there's the flag. Let's go capture that and helping people see the vision on how to get there. You don't have to be the manager. You don't have to be the head of the group, but right. you can help be a visionary to say, look, this is the future. This is the direction we go. This is the solution and help people understand how they get there, right? How did, what is their journey to that place individually? Um, you can do as, it's an individual contributor in any organization. And, and I see it in my kids all day long. I see it in their college careers. I see it in their, their athletic organizations that they're part of. And they've, they definitely have embraced that. Now, now can you learn leadership? Absolutely. Okay. Right. But I do believe some people have it in their DNA that, that they're not necessarily born leaders, but the key is that you have to understand how to embrace that, how to take advantage of your non-accepting of mediocrity and and that you want to help everyone do better as a group. Um, It's all about teamwork, right? It's about us as a group of whatever, 
you know, at work, a team, we as a group together can do more than just us individuals mm-hmm. and, and helping people see that vision. Um, and it, it's just amazing to see that in my kids, right? I mean, obviously that's helped me throughout my career. Um, you know, I, I view myself as a leader regardless of, of my role. Um, and, and I want to help people. Um, you know, Simon Sinek has several philosophies about, he has a book called leaders eat last, right? Mm-hmm. In the military, why does the general eat the last? He's taking care of his people, making sure they all eat first. And he's, the, if there's any food left over, the leaders eat, right? right. I mean, it's, it's all about taking care of the, and earning trust with the people that you're in an organization with. And, and, and you can lead regardless. I do think a manager should be somewhat of a leader um, because they need to be able to take care of the people and earn that trust. Um, so it's important to attribute of a leader, but just because you're someone's manager doesn't mean you're the leader, right? And you can lead from any position. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I, I think this idea that, you know, you can be born with that leadership gene, but then you have to recognize that, embrace it, nurture it, grow it, right? Yes, absolutely. But then also, if you're not born with it, that's okay. You know, acknowledge that it doesn't come naturally to you. And then same thing, same as public speaking, work on it, develop it and do it to the best of your ability. And And we need to start a a Toastmasters for leadership. That's exactly that's right. And so what's, you know, and and I think the important thing there is like understanding that if your role is to be a leader, then that's your role in the team. Right. Absolutely. But there's a ton of different roles that we can play. And so acknowledging or realizing what that role is for yourself and if it is, naturally to, to lead, well, then embrace that. And I think, you know, I think that's a really powerful sentiment and something that, that will probably resonate with, with a lot of people. Um, John, this has been a fantastic conversation. I I think there's just so much value for people to get out of, out of listening to this. Uh, I just really want to thank you for your time. I think it's a great sentiment to, for us to leave off on this time. Uh, and I would love in the future if we could reconnect and kind of see where you're at and kind of what new challenges and, and impact you're trying to overcome and drive. Thanks Peter. Yeah. would love to do it. I appreciate uh, the opportunity.